This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 20 The Giant. I sometimes fancy that every great city must have been built by night. At least it is only at night that every part of a great city is great. All architecture is great architecture after sunset. Perhaps architecture is really a nocturnal art, like the art of fireworks. At least I think many people of those nobler trades that work by night, journalists, policemen, burglars, coffee-stall keepers, and such mistaken enthusiasts as refuse to go home until morning, must often have stood admiring some black bulk of building with a crown of battlements or a crest of spires, and then burst into tears at daybreak to discover that it was only a haberdasher's shop with huge gold letters across the face of it. I had a sensation of this sort the other day, as I happened to be wandering in the temple gardens toward the end of twilight. I sat down on a bench with my back to the river, happening to choose such a place that a huge angle and facade of building jutting out from the strand sat above me like an incubus. I dare say that if I took the same seat to-morrow by daylight I should find the impression entirely false. In sunlight the thing might seem almost distant, but in that half-darkness it seemed as if the walls were almost falling upon me. Never before have I had so strongly the sense which makes people pessimists in politics, the sense of the hopeless height of the high places of the earth. That pile of wealth and power, whatever was its name, went up above and beyond me like a cliff that no living thing could climb. I had an irrational sense that this thing had to be fought, that I had to fight it, and that I could offer nothing to the occasion but an indolent journalist with a walking-stick. Almost as I had the thought, two windows were lit in that black, blind face. It was as if two eyes had opened in the huge face of a sleeping giant. The eyes were too close together, and gave it the suggestion of a bestial sneer. And either by accident of this light or some other, I could now read the big letters which spaced themselves across the front. It was the Babylon Hotel. It was the perfect symbol of everything that I should like to pull down with my hands if I could. Reared by a detected robber, it is framed to be the fashionable and luxurious home of undetected robbers. In the house of man are many mansions, but there is a class of men who feel normal nowhere except in the Babylon Hotel or in Dartmoor Goal. That big black face which was staring at me with its flaming eyes too close together. That was indeed the giant of all epic and fairy tales. But alas, I was not the giant killer. The hour had come, but not the man. I sat down on the seat again. I had had one wild impulse to climb up the front of the hotel and fall in at one of the windows. And I tried to think, as all decent people are thinking, what one can really do. And all the time that oppressive wall went up in front of me and took hold upon the heavens like a house of the gods. It is remarkable that in so many great wars 
it has been the defeated who have won. The people who were left worse at the end of the war were generally the people who were left best at the end of the whole business. For instance, the Crusades ended in the defeat of the Christians, but they did not end in the decline of the Christians. They ended in the decline of the Saracens. That huge prophetic wave of Moslem power which had hung in the very heavens above the towns of Christendom, that wave was broken and never came on again. The Crusaders had saved Paris in the act of losing Jerusalem. The same applies to that epoch of Republican war in the 18th century, to which we liberals owe our political creed. The French Revolution ended in defeat. The kings came back across a carpet of the dead at Waterloo. The Revolution had lost its battle, but it had gained its first object. It had cut a chasm. The world has never been the same since. No one after that has ever been able to treat the poor merely as pavement. These jewels of God, the poor, are still treated as mere stones of the street, but as stones that may sometimes fly. If it please God, you and I may see some of the flying stones again before we see death. But here I only remark the interesting fact that the conquered almost always conquer. Sparta killed Athens with a final blow, and she was born again. Sparta went away victorious, and died slowly of her own wounds. The Boers lost the South African War, and gained South Africa. And this is really all that we can do when we fight, something really stronger than ourselves. We can deal it its death wound one moment. It deals us death in the end, it is something, if we can shock and jar the unthinking impetus and enormous innocence of evil, just as a pebble on a railway can stagger the Scotch Express. It is enough for the great martyrs and criminals of the French Revolution that they have surprised for all time the secret weaknesses of the strong. They have awakened and set leaping and quivering in his crypt forever the coward in the hearts of kings. When Jack the Giant Killer really first saw the giant, his experience was not such as has been generally supposed. If you care to hear it, I will tell you the real story of Jack the Giant Killer. To begin with, the most awful thing which Jack first felt about the giant was that he was not a giant. He came striding across an interminable wood plain, and against its remote horizon the giant was quite a small figure like a figure in a picture. He seemed merely a man walking across the grass. Then Jack was shocked by remembering that the grass, which the man was treading down, was one of the tallest forests upon the plain. The man came nearer and nearer, growing bigger and bigger, and at the instant when he passed the possible stature of humanity, Jack almost screamed. The rest was an intolerable apocalypse. The giant had the one frightful quality of a miracle. The more he became incredible, the more he became solid. The less one could believe in him, the more plainly one could see him. It was unbearable that so much of the sky should be occupied by one human face. His eyes, which had stood out like bow windows, became bigger, and yet there was no metaphor that could contain their bigness. Yet still they were human eyes, 
Jack's intellect was utterly gone under that huge hypnotism of the face that filled the sky. His last hope was submerged, his five wits, all still with terror. But there stood up in him still a kind of cold chivalry, a dignity of dead honor that would not forget the small and futile sword in his hand. He rushed at one of the colossal feet of this human tower, and when he came quite close to it, the ankle bone arched over him like a cave. Then he planted the point of his sword against the foot and leant on it with all his weight, till it went in up to the hilt, and broke the hilt, and then snapped just under it. And it was plain that the giant felt a sort of prick, for he snatched up his great foot into his great hand for an instant, and then putting it down again, he bent over and stared at the ground, until he had seen his enemy. Then he picked up Jack between a finger and thumb, and threw him away. And as Jack went through the air, he felt as if he were flying from system to system through the universe of stars. But as the giant had thrown him away carelessly, he did not strike a stone, but struck soft mire by the side of a distant river. There he lay insensible for several hours. But when he awoke again, his horrible conqueror was still in sight. He was striding away across the void and wounded plain towards where it entered in the sea, and by this time he was only much higher than any of the hills. He grew less and less indeed, but only as a really high mountain grows at last less and less when we leave it in a railway train. Half an hour afterwards he was a bright blue color as are the distant hills, but his outline was still human and still gigantic. Then the big blue figure seemed to come to the brink of the big blue sea, and even as it did so, it altered its attitude. Jack, stunned and bleeding, lifted himself laboriously upon one elbow to stare. The giant once more caught hold of his ankle, wavered twice as in a wind, and then went over into the great sea, which washes the whole world, and which, alone of all things, God has made, was big enough to drown him. End of chapter 20